It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Crime Wire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case to Crime Wire or suggest a topic for a future show, please email us at thenewcrimewire at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at The New Crime Wire. My name is Denny Griffin, and on today's show, my co-host Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com and I are again joined by Phyllis Cook Anderson, who will update us on the 1967 shooting death of her brother Ronald Wayne Anderson, and in 2013, the shooting death of her father, Dan Anderson. Both deaths were declared suicides, but Phyllis is sure both men were murdered by what is known as the Dixie Mafia. Phyllis, welcome back to CrimeWire. Well, good morning, Mr. Denny. I am great that you and Delilah have asked me back on as a follow-up with the first story. Well, it's good to have you. And, you know, I think what we ought to do, uh, Phyllis, is let's start out with reminding our audience what the Dixie Mafia is. Okay. Now, the Dixie Mafia, they were in Arkansas, Tennessee, Florida, Louisiana, Oklahoma, the ones that I am mainly speaking of were the ones that are around in Gulfport, Mississippi, back in the 60s. It was just a loosely knit bunch of thugs, I guess you could say, from up in the middle 1920s on up of men that got together. They started gambling, robbing, stealing, doing anything that they could possibly do for a dollar, even, yes, murdering. Um, and that is how it was whenever the bootlegging and the casinos and stuff were illegal back on the Gulf Coast. And a lot of law enforcement during that time covered up and got involved with it. And that is one of the reasons I guess you could say I will be telling my story today is my father had in the early 60s went in as a rookie cop and he got involved in with it. But they are not like the Sicilian or the Gambino or the big, I guess you could say, suit-wearing, cigar-type mafia that we have like Chicago or you see in the movies. These were just a loosely knit bunch, like a gypsy bunch of thugs that got together, but they were as dangerous. Yes, it um, it seems uh, you say they, they probably weren't as organized as the um, – Italian American mafia that were that we're used to, but they did have something in common. Uh, well, they had a few things in common. Uh, one thing, of course, was money. Uh, right. In 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 any of these uh, organized crime or even disorganized crime operations, uh, money usually is at the bottom of it. Um, and 
like you say, they were thugs and capable of uh, doing anything from, uh, you know, fraud or robbery up to murder. And uh, that's the way the the Italian-American mafia operates, too. They're capable of doing about anything. So uh, other than the organization part, they're probably very similar. Do you think so? Oh, yes. They're just as dangerous. I mean, they will, you know, no matter what name you hang on someone, whether it be a thug in downtown Atlanta or it be your dope addict next-door neighbor or just anyone, when you kill someone and you go out to that graveyard, your family is just as dead as whoever killed him. So by hanging the name on them, it means a little different, but they, you know, I guess you could say, you know, anyone's family that is murdered and killed are just as dead as my family. But the mafia, yes, that bunch would kill you faster and would kill you quicker for a dollar or for anything illegal than, you know, most people would. Phyllis, uh, well, so do you feel like there's still um, remnants of the Dixie Mafia still operating in the states oh, yes. that you say, and maybe even other states like the Carolinas, Georgia, or do they, does the arm of that Dixie Mafia reach that far? Delilah, it reaches so far. It reaches up into the White House. It reaches, yes, ma'am, it reaches quite far. And this is not something that I am pulling up, that making or a fabricated remark that I'm making. You Google Dixie Mafia 1987, and you can read pretty much of the ones involved and you would be surprised at the political people that are involved in with the Dixie Mafia. Now, do I think that they are as easy to kill or do their corruption as they were back then? No. I think they're more organized and they're more of a discreet type than they were back then. You know, you mentioned uh, political people. That's another I think with uh, with the other organized crime families is that uh, politicians having political clout uh, helps keep them in existence. So that works uh, again with the organized crime families or the Dixie Mafia. That uh, having the politicians in your pocket or beholden to you certainly can uh, can advance uh, the cause of your organization. You're very right. So many of them are protected by law enforcement, politicians, government officials. You are so right, Mr. Denny. Now, Phyllis, let's let's talk a little bit now about your brother. Uh, Tell us exactly why he was in Mississippi and why you believe he became a victim uh, of association by your father's choice of friends. Okay, sure. Now, back to say, I did not know about the Dixie Mafia. I had no knowledge whatsoever of the Dixie Mafia until 2013, which I will explain farther in the story. But my parents had divorced back in the early 50s, and my dad was a quite frequent visitor for the VA hospital. My dad had drinking and gambling issues, and when my daddy came out of the Army, I guess they call it PTS now. I don't know what they would have called it back then, but he had some issues. So he was, you know, a frequent visitor for the VA hospital in Biloxi, and that's where he met the highest of the high and the lowest of the low. And he finally moved there after my parents divorced. He was a resident of Gulfport, Mississippi. 
while in 1965, of course, my mother had remarried and my stepfather was verbally abusive. So Ronnie was 15 at the time. Ronnie had developed polio when he was only three years old. So he went to live with my dad. Mother sent him to live with my dad because he of my stepfather. He had been there probably no more than a year and a half whenever he was shot under the neck with a 410 shotgun over and under. His case was ruled a suicide. We knew it wasn't suicide, and we knew who had pretty much done it. But due to my father's involvement in with the law enforcement and their involvement in the Sheriff Roy Hobbs, all their involvement in with law enforcement, his case was covered up as a suicide. Ronnie had recently, he, like I say, Ronnie was 15. He was 17 whenever he was shot. So Ronnie had recently moved out into a boarding house, I guess we would call it an apartment now, with a so-called friend who was named Jeffrey Dennis Bass. Now, this Jeffrey Bass was a nephew of my dad's ex-wife, who is Rose Moore Gaucher. I guess she would be Anderson back then. So that is how Ronnie became, you know, in Gulfport. That's how he came to live in Gulfport. And then on to his murder is because of the associations with the Dixie Mafia, unknowing to me at that time. Okay, so... Ronnie was killed, and it was determined by uh, by the authorities to be a suicide. It sounds to me like that would have been a tough stretch to turn that into a suicide, but apparently uh, they were successful. Uh, did anybody uh, at the time, you or your father or anybody, uh, question that suicide ruling? Yes, sir, Mr. Denny, it was, it was questioned, but I must say that due to my father's involvement in with Roy Hobbs, the sheriff, who was later sentenced to prison with the money laundering embezzlement, involvement in with the Dixie Mafia and other things, drugs and stuff, it was covered up because they were protecting the Dixie Mafia. My dad was a big card player. I have pictures of my father sitting at his kitchen table during that era of time playing cards with several members of the Dixie Mafia, one of the members to be the one that is alleged to have, I say it's alleged, it's proven, to be the murder of Buford Pussard's wife, Pauline Pussard, on August the 12th of 1967. My brother was murdered one day and one month and 14 days later. So it was questioned, and I have questioned it for 50 years. I called, I called, I would only be told, Miss. Uh, Anderson, we're looking into it, or Ms. Collins, we're looking into it. We will get back with you. Yes, ma'am, we're working on the case. It would not be more than 30 to 45 minutes. I would get a call from my dad telling me to leave it alone, that Ronnie was dead and there was nothing going to change it, that leave it alone, that even to the point of later on in years telling me to leave it the hell alone before I get someone killed. Well, unknowing to me, I did not know what he meant, but the day that Rodney was murdered was on September the 26th of 1967. Riding around with some friends, had a gut feeling that something was bad to wrong. I could just feel that he needed me. I stopped at a payphone, called my dad. My dad said that as far as he knew, Ronnie was okay. I told him that I was worried about him. I wanted him to come stay with me for a while. My dad said he went over, carried Ronnie some shoes, and carried him some money, 
and that Ronnie was ironing his shirt, happy that I was coming after him. Everything was fine. He was in a good mood. There were no issues. Well, he was living, like I say, in with this Jeffrey Bassett. I have later found out that he was a member of a Dixie Mafia gang during that time. He was supposedly to have been 18, 19 years old. So when they found out Ronnie was going to leave, of course, he was not going to be able to leave because you don't get out of that situation. They was afraid that he knew too much, being at my dad's house, hearing conversations, and to whatever the involvement were with the Jeffrey Bass, his friend, they did not allow him to leave. I got a call the next day. I ran to the car wash, grabbed the kids, you know, everything happy, bought groceries. I got back home. There was a note on my door. I still have that original note from 1967 telling me to call my mom that they had some bad news. When I called, I was told that, you know, my brother was dead, that he had been shot. Now, for 36 years, I called, and I explained to them that the night before my brother was buried, I was asleep. You know, back then, every time a funeral or something happened, people want to give you a nerve pill so you'll go to sleep or whatever. And, of course, I was very distraught. I almost went to the middle ward over all this. Um, got a call that night, and it was from a girl named Kathy. I know him to the last name, and my husband told us that she was asleep and he was not going to wake me up. He said he kept asking her her name and said finally when he, she found out he wasn't going to wake her up, she started crying hysterically saying he killed him, he killed him. So I questioned my dad to this. My dad said she was just some little crazy girl that Ronnie was dating that he would handle it. Well, my dad could not divulge what had happened to my brother out of fear of his life or another child being murdered. So for 36 years, you know, I called every day, almost monthly, you know, to ask them what happened to my brother. Would they investigate it? Still to be told, we're looking into it, having my father call me, my father demanding I leave it alone. Well, in 2002, I was sitting in a Waffle House having breakfast with my father because my dad, you know, it was his birthday. It was, August, uh, it was November the 26th, so it was a family ritual. We all went to Dad's for Thanksgiving and his birthday, and then he and Mom would come to our house with the stepmom and stepdads for Christmas. While my dad and I were sitting in the Waffle House, I noticed my dad's whole demeanor changed, and Dad sort of looked around me at someone sitting behind me. My dad mumbled the words, SOB, except he said, like I say, he said the words out. Well, I immediately turned around. When I turned around, my dad demanded, he said, turn back around, turn back, don't you look at that SOB. Well, I turned back around, and I'm watching my dad, and I mean, his, his whole face was just, it was horrible. So a few minutes, the man gets up, he walks past our table, and as he walks past our table, he just sort of stops and glares down at my dad and I, and I knew I'd seen him, but I could not put a face to it. So as he walked down out the door and got far enough down the road to where my dad knew that I could not catch up with him, my dad looked at me and he said, do you know who that was? I said, no, Daddy, but I know you don't like him. My dad said, that was Jeffrey Bass. said, that's the old boy that killed Ronnie. That was the first time in 36 years that my dad had ever admitted that my brother was murdered or was killed rather than it being a suicide. I started to uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say, Phyllis, um you're you know, you lived with that for thirty six years trying to get 
information and, and, and trying to get uh, some action by the police. Uh, and your father lived with it as well, uh, knowing that his son had not committed suicide. Did uh, I wonder how tough that was on your dad, uh, having to keep that quiet because of uh, you know his concerns for his own life and possibly your life. Uh, uh, do you think that placed a lot of stress on him? Oh, Danny, I did not realize just how much, but as you get older and you realize things and then you you look back on cer- certain circumstances, my older brother had moved to Purlington, Mississippi, back down on the Purlington River on the other side of uh, between Gulf- Gulfport and New Orleans. Uh, he knew what had happened to my little brother also, but he kept me from knowing. They all kept me from knowing, and it was just a really hushed thing. But after my little brother was murdered, my older brother, he never really spoke to my father any kind word from that day on. Found out through the years there was a reason. He knew, and he was involved in some things. He got tried to investigate it. They knew that my stepmother was involved because my dad had even had me call her at one point to where... Um, to ask her some questions because he knew, and then from the statement she made, my dad demanded I hang up the phone and never call her again, but I did. But anyway, my older brother and my father, their relationship ended that day, even to the point to where when my older brother died in 2000, uh, yeah, April of 2000, my father did not even go to his funeral. So my dad distanced himself from the boys. I had two brothers, and my dad distanced himself from them, and now we know why. He did not want anyone to visit Mississippi. He did not want the kids and the grandkids. Of course, now, my dad was my world. My dad couldn't have pushed me away if he had took a shotgun. But, I mean, you know, I went, and my dad, I was my dad's heart, and my, he was my heart. But, yeah, he distanced himself from the boys because of all this. And it took its toll on my dad. It really took its toll on my dad. Um, you mentioned uh, that uh, that your brother was killed with a, with a 410. Uh, whose gun was that? Was that was your brother's gun, or who, whose uh, who's, uh, 410 was it? No, and it's amazing because I had asked about the gun, and, of course, no one knew where the gun was. No one knew anything about this. And I wanted to correct one thing you had made in the opening statement of my father murdered in 2013, and then I'll mm-hmm. go to the gun issue. My father was murdered four and a half months, well, about three and a half to four months. I saw the guy in the Waffle House on November the 27th of 2002. My dad positively identified him as the killer of my brother for the first time in 36 years. I made the statement to the waitress. Trudy Franklin, who had been there forever, that I would walk the streets of hell until I found this Jeffrey Bass and asked why he killed my brother. Well, she told Jeffrey Bass, and she admitted that day inside herself that, yes, that's who he was. He did intimidate my dad. My dad was terrified of him and that my dad had maintained he was the one that had killed my brother all those years. Well, to the April the 18th of 2003, three and a half months later, after my dad identified him in the Waffle House, my dad was shot in his driveway, gunned down in his driveway to keep him quiet. So, but going back to the gun, it was a 410, and no one knew whatever happened to the gun. For the 36 years that I was calling, even up until August of 2017, 
I never knew who had the gun or who it belonged to. No one would tell me. When I sent for the FOIA request, the third FOIA request that I finally, the first couple were stamped in big red letters, denied, and mailed back to me. I got the one on August the 16th of 2017 from a Captain Peterson. I've never been so shocked in my life as the fabricated BS that was in there. But it stated that they were two guns. It states that, and of course, now in this for your information, no one knows anything. No one can remember names. No one can remember dates. Um, that would be helpful of anything. But he stated in that FOIA request that I got that they Jeff that he's found a Jeffrey Bass. And see, I had posted on Facebook a picture of Jeffrey Bass, and I had people come back that positively identified him as yes, that's Jeffrey Bass, and yes, that's the guy that we knew back then that was involved in with the mafia. So, what? but on the gun. He states in there that Jeffrey Bass, this fabricated Jeffrey Bass, stated that a guy came over that was supposedly a friend of Roddy's and brought two guns over, a 410 and a 22. He could not remember the guy's name, but that they went to a dump and they were shooting the guns at a dump, but only the 22 would fire that they did not that 410 would not fire, and they did not think that it had a firing pin in it or that it would shoot. So then he states that they went back to the apartment and that Ronnie was supposedly sitting on the bed, leaning on the gun when the gun went off, and this Jeffrey Bass was looking through the mirror, combing his hair, and he saw Ronnie fall back. Well, then it states the guy went on home. Well, if the guy went home... And they had the 410, and it would not shoot. Why was the guy carrying around a 410 that he didn't think had a firing pin in it or would shoot? Why would Ronnie be leaning on this guy's gun if the guy's already gone home? He took his 22. Why did he not take the 410 with him? Then he states that they ran upstairs and got a nurse to come down to assist there was no nurse upstairs. Ronnie them lived upstairs, and the only nurse that's involved was the nurse that was my stepmother that came over and bathed and cleaned Ronnie and helped him clean up the crime scene and change every his clothes and all that were never found before the police were called. So these guns, I believe, belong to Jeffrey Bass. That's my firm believer that they were Jeffrey Bass's guns. Okay, let's back up just a little bit, and then then we'll get back to the FOIA request later. Um, you mentioned you had a conversation with Rose, uh, your father's ex-wife, and and after that conversation, he told you never to talk to her again. What 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 was said in that conversation uh, you had with Rose? It was several months. I'm gonna say in between. Uh Five or six months to a year after my brother was murdered, I, and I use that term, I went to Dad's to visit. And while we had gone over to another lady friend of his, and while we were there having dinner, Dad asked me to go in there on the phone and to call Rose and pretend that I had just gotten in town and that Daddy was at home and to ask her if she knew where he was because he wanted to see what she would tell me. And uh, I called her. Daddy was listening on the other line, and she said, no, she had not seen Daddy. She says, but I know what you want to know. She said, if you will come to my house and not bring anyone with you or not tell anyone that you're coming, 
She said, I'll tell you what you want to know. At that point, my daddy just started waving his hands hysterically, but hang up the phone, hang up the phone. I hung up the phone, and my dad told me, he said, don't you ever call that, and I guess dad's main word was SOB, because my dad hardly ever talked ugly, but that was his word then. Don't you ever call, and he called her that. He said, again, he said, do you hear me? I said, yes, sir. He said, don't you ever call her again. Well, that was in, let's see, Ronnie was killed in 67. That was between 67 and 68. Well, in 1997, I called her again, and I have the number, the date, the time, and her nephew, Mark, that I spoke to that day. He said she was shopping. She would call me back. She finally called me back, and this was in 1997, and As we were talking in the conversation, she told me that this Kathy was Ronnie's girlfriend and that she thought Kathy might have been pregnant at the time. She also told me that when she had gotten to the hospital, that when Dad got to the hospital, she tried to tell me the most gory of details that she could to hurt me, and I knew this. She said that when Daddy got to the hospital, that she was walking along behind Daddy, and my brother was on the gurney, and that blood was pouring everywhere, and she was mopping it up, and he had one eyeball hanging out. She went into the gorge of everything, but she did tell me, uh, she confirmed that that Kathy was real, and, you know, that was the second time that I'd heard the Kathy's name, and she told me that the reason she had gone over and bathed and cleaned Ronnie up was that she tried to save him. She was a registered nurse, but I knew that she did not try to save him. She went over because Jeffrey Bass was her nephew by marriage, and she went over and they bathed, cleaned, disposed of Ronnie's clothes, and cleaned up the crime scene, and my dad knew this. He tried all through the years to get her to talk, but, you know, that was another, she she just wouldn't tell. Wow. Now, before we get back to the FOIA information, which is actually going to be the update uh, to the case, there was also a murder in 1987, uh, and that resulted in you having an interesting talk with your father. Uh, Could you give us the details of that 1987 murder and what your father had to say about it? Sure, Danny. I had gotten home from work. The school had called, and my youngest child was sick, and they said I need to pick him up. So I transferred my calls from my office to my home, picked up my son from school, and when I got home, I figured my stepmother would be home. But I called my dad usually every morning before I'd go to work, or I'd call him all during the day, call him at night. Like I say, my dad was my hero. So when I called, uh, Dad answered the phone. And I said, well, hey, Daddy. I said, you're home early. He said, yeah. Dickinson, that was the nickname my dad gave me, but he said, Daddy's had one of the worst days of his life. And I said, why, Daddy, what happened? He said, somebody killed Sherry last night. Well, Sherry was Judge Vincent Sherry, who my dad was, he was, I think, a circuit court judge, and my dad was his bailiff. I said, oh, my God. I said, what happened? He said, they shot him, damn it, they shot him. Well, I knew by my dad talking to me like that, he was very upset. I said, well, you know, whatever. Daddy went into the detail of he had gotten to court that morning, and I think it was like on a Tuesday of September the 14th, 1987. Daddy uh, said that he had gotten to the courthouse, that he was, you know, as his job, he would adjust the heat or air and fix coffee, waiting for the judge to get there before court started. He said court cases were waiting to be heard, and Judge Sherry had not shown up. 
people were asking my dad, you know, where's Sherry? We've got cases to be heard. So my dad said that he called over to the law firm of Judge Sherry and Pete Hallett. They shared a law firm partnership together. He said he asked Pete Hallett if Judge Sherry was there. Pete told him no, he had not seen him. My dad stated that, well, court was waiting to be heard, and people were asking. Daddy said Sherry would be here if something wasn't going on. So Daddy said, I'm going out to the house and check on him. Pete Hallett told Daddy, said, I'll meet you there. My dad said that when they got there, the door was cracked open. Daddy said they both called Mark, or, you know, he called for Margaret and Sherry. Nobody answered. Daddy said you could hear the dog barking. He said he pushed the door open and he went in. He said Judge Sherry was lying there. He had been shot four times. My dad said that he went into the bedroom and that Margaret, Judge Sherry's wife, was on her knees in a kneeling position by the bed like she was saying a prayer. Daddy said she had been shot execution style. And I said, well, did they know who done it? Daddy said, no, but Sherry does. And he, I said, why? He said, well, there was three, co- uh, three cookies in a saucer, a half a glass of milk on the coffee table. There was a cup or two cups on the counter. So Daddy said that he knew that Sherry knew who they were. There was no forced entry. Well, I said, I made the statement. I said, oh, my God, those poor kids. My dad said, well, they don't know anything about it yet. Said Pete Hallett told, or Pete told him to go home and let him handle it, that he did not want the media or the kids to get wind of it before, you know, they could get the coroner and the police out there. So apparently when my dad got home, I called him and made contact with him just in a few minutes of him walking in the door. Everything was still fresh on his mind and him upset. So my dad spills his guts to me and tells me everything because we discussed court cases that he was on weekly. So later on that night, I called my dad to make sure he was okay before he went to bed, and Daddy didn't want to talk about it because I'd ask him if any new details or whatever. Daddy did not want to talk about it. He would say, Dickens, let's just talk happy thoughts. Daddy don't want to talk about it. I'm thinking it's his friend, you know, his judge friend, and he's upset. So I didn't really mention it a lot. Well, that rocked on for from ninety from eighty seven until ninety seven. My dad finally talked about it again. If you would like for me to go into that, yeah, I'm curious what he had to say ten years later. Okay, ten years later, I'm in a Waffle House, and I'm thinking it's ninety seven. I know it was in the nineties, and I still say it was ninety seven. But um, I was in a Waffle House. My husband and I having breakfast at the time. And I noticed, or I overheard a conversation in the booth behind me. This lady says, yep, so they shot O'Sherry four different times and said they shot her too. Well, I immediately turned around and I said, excuse me. I said, are you talking about Vincent Sherry, Judge Sherry in Gulfport, Mississippi? I associated everything with Gulfport, Biloxi. I didn't know where anyone lived at the time, so everything was Gulfport with me. So the man and woman, she never turned around. And this man, he just glared at me. He just, I mean, the most evilest of glare. And he stood up. They waited just a minute. He stood up, both of them. He laid the tip on the table, and they walked up to the counter, paid for the meal, and went out the door. Never spoke a word. Well, I only had my pager then. I worked for the Office of Law Enforcement Cobb County, so I only had a pager. I did not have a cell phone. When I got home, I called my dad and told him. My dad, Denny, my dad went bananas. He said, 
He kept saying, what did he say to you? Phyllis Elaine, what did he say to you? I said, Daddy, he didn't say anything. He just looked at me. He he kept repeating just almost to a hysterical type voice of, what did he say to you? As I kept telling Dad, he did not say anything. He said, what did he look like? I said, he was just a scroungy-looking old guy, and she was a blonde-headed lady. And I said, they... He just sort of limped out the door. And I didn't mean that to be ugly, but the guy did have a limp. The minute I said that, my dad said, I always say, oh, gosh, but my dad said, good God Almighty. He said, that was John Ransom. He said, that's the son of a, mm mm-hmm, and Pete Hallett who murdered Sherry. He said, don't you ever tell a soul. Did you hear me? He said, don't you ever tell anybody about this. You just let Daddy handle it. Well, of course, you know, that was a subject with him being that upset. You know how you respect your dad when they, you know, the voice of authority. I just never really talked about it a lot with him and brought it up again because he would have went crazy. So I did not, really didn't even understand or talk about that. Well, it wasn't long after that in 97 also, and it seems like a lot of this happened in 97, but this is when the court trials and everything that was going on with the sheriffs that my dad kept me protected and kept me from knowing, and he would come visit me to keep me from coming to Mississippi probably to find out about that. But he had company one night, and I, I called him, and he asked if he could call me back, and I said, sure. He said, I've got company, said Ruth's over. Well, I'm thinking it's a lady friend of his that I did not care for. Um, Found out why later. But anyway, he said, no. He said, I said, what's she doing over there? He said, no, this is Ruth Potomac. He said, Sherry's uh, court reporter. She had brought my dad copies of all the court transcripts of the trial. And I guess she had brought them all over to my dad. It wasn't but a couple of weeks later maybe two to three weeks later, my dad calls and tells me that he's putting a package in the mail and for me to to put it up when I get it. Well, of course, as soon as I get it, I'm nosy. I open it up and I'm looking at it in its court transcripts, still never thinking about the sheriffs or knowing about the mafia. They did not mean anything to me other than just scanning over and reading a few things. But I saw on one particularly where it said, see the next page. Well, I call my dad And I said, Daddy, I said, I'm reading over this stuff you sent. And I said, you've got on here, Mark, see the next page. I said, what do you want me to see? He said, well, Daddy don't know. What does it say? Well, I read it to him, and it said that something to the fact that Pete Hallett knew about the murders before Steve Dallahoosie, the coroner, knew about them. My daddy said, put them... SOB's up again. There he was for that word, but put them things <laughs> up. And he said, Don't you ever get them out again. He said, You put them SOBs up. Well, I read on, scanned over a couple more things, not meaning nothing to me, and I put them up. Had no idea what they meant. I'd put them in a box, and they had stayed in a box until 2013, whenever I was told by a cold case investigator about my brother's murder, who murdered him, and how positive he was, and about the mafia. Uh, let's uh, let's talk for a minute about uh, April 18, 2003. Uh, your father was shot while he was in his driveway. What what type of weapon was used, and uh, was was that gun found? Uh, or what was what were the details? Okay, I'd gotten a call probably around um, 
1231 o'clock Georgia time uh, by my dad's attorney friend, Roy Strickland, who was a longtime friend of my dad's. I mean, they were like inseparable gambling, playing cards and all this together, that my dad had committed suicide. I get to, I jump, you know, I'm in a cast from my penny line down to my feet. I'd had surgery on crutches. So when I get to the hospital, to the funeral home that morning, we hours at the morning Gulfport, I speak with a Gary Hargrove. He tells me, very rude, arrogant corner, and he tells me that my dad had committed suicide, that he had shot himself with his service revolver. And I kept telling my dad would not do that. I kept asking to see my dad, and I was refused to see him the whole time. So I'm told that my that there was a lady named Cherry Learn who was, she says that she answered a ad as a housekeeper for my dad to help take care of him, which I've never seen the ad. I did know that she was there because my daddy called and told me that he couldn't get her to leave, that she would not leave. And I said, well, just let me get to where I can get over my surgery to where I can walk. And I even told her I will be up there and throw her out. So <laughs> she stated that she had gone to the store, that she'd come home from work, and that she'd gone to the store to get my dad some cigarettes. And that when she came back, that my dad was lying in the driveway that he had, she thought at first that the dog had tripped him over and he had fallen. But when she got out of the car, she saw that my dad was shot. I did speak to her. I did not, I tried contacting her from um, 19, from 2002, I'm sorry, from 2003 when my father was shot. I tried contacting her from that point of 2003 up until just several months back and never could get a hold of her, even on Facebook. I finally, she did, once things started being posted on Facebook, she developed a page, and I was able to contact her. She stated that my dad had shot himself, that um, she had gone to the store to get cigarettes, but whenever I was cleaning the house, there was a carton of cigarettes in there on my dad's nightstand that had four in the pack, there was two packs on his little nightstand in the den where he lay, and that um, it had about three or four out of one pack and another four packs, so I knew that was not true. So I called Gary Hargrove, the coroner, and I expressed to him that my dad did not commit suicide and that I did not think my dad was shot with his service revolver. He was very arrogant, told me, yes, my dad did commit suicide, that my dad was going to jail for gambling and uh, bad checks, and that um, everything, my dad had sold and ponded everything in the house and that gotten rid of everything. So that's why my dad committed suicide. And if I get off track, you bring me back to where the point you need, Danny. But he said that um, I called Judge Terry, the guy that my dad was part, the judge that my dad was working part time bailiff for then. And I reiterated what Gary Hargrove, the coroner, had told me. He said, who told you this? And I told him exact word again. He said, honey, your daddy was not going to jail. He said, you let me handle this. He said, but rest assured your daddy was not going to jail. So I knew I don't think my dad was uh, shot with his gun. Now, I did ask where the gun was lying. They said the gun was between my dad's legs, down between his feet, that my dad had fallen backwards and that the gun was between his feet. But I must say, I gave, they gave me his pants, his socks, his underwear, his belt, and things in the evidence bag, which I still have. 
His socks looked like he had been walking in the yard or out in the woods for a month. My dad's house was very spotless. My dad was a spotless housekeeper. My stepmother had, I guess, got him to be into that point to where, you know, their house was very clean. So I knew that the socks were not something that he had just accidentally walked out to the end of the driveway. It was said that he walked to the end of the driveway or to the middle off the porch there by the lamppost in the front yard and shot himself in the side of the head. But, Mr. Denny, when I got there, there was, you know, shortly after he was supposed to have shot himself around 4.30 in the afternoon on a uh, Friday afternoon, busy neighbors next door. It's one of those little, like you can hand neighbors a cup of coffee off the porch. People zoom in back and forth because it's a throwaway. It's about three blocks off of Highway 90 where the golf, you can see the water. So people would have seen my dad lying there. But... His socks were filthy, and I told him I did not think that my dad shot himself with the gun. Now, I was given the gun back. They did not want me to have it, but Judge Terry had them give it back to me. But I think my dad was shot somewhere else and brought back because you know how if you run over a dog, a deer, or anything in the road, it leaves blood into the concrete for at least several days or whatever. There was nothing. There was no crime scene tape when I got there. There was no pl- nothing indicated that my father had been shot in that yard other than I think there was a little piece of tissue, I guess you could say, brain tissue or whatever, into the side of the monkey grass that I noticed. But there was no blood, no anywhere. When I asked the coroner about this, he told me that the fire department had come over and that they had him, he had him wash it all away. Well, there was nothing even in the grass. Uh, Phyllis, uh, was an autopsy done on your father? It was. There was an autopsy done, and it was very okay. questionable because it says blood spatter and powder particles on both hands. Um, and how could blood spatter and powder particles be on both hands? If my dad shot himself, because I think my dad was left-handed, but it states it was shot with the right, so he could have possibly been right-handed and me thinking it was left. But either way, he had a hammerless 38. He had a Smith & Wesson 38 hammerless service revolver. It had a hairline trigger. I mean, you could pull it with just one little finger. It was a click. It was not something that would have taken of both hands. Um. Do you do you have the autopsy report? I do. And did, did you uh, get or can you get the autopsy photos? No, I have been denied the autopsy photos. In fact, I was never able to obtain anything other than the autopsy report that I finally got in July when I went back to sell my dad's house. But other than that, I was unable to obtain anything whatsoever up what, until what, 2017. What was the reason that they cited for not allowing you to uh, obtain the autopsy photos? They said that Mississippi does not have to comply with that order and that if I want the co- uh, photo scene uh, pictures that I have to obtain a court a court order. Uh, so they, they did take... Uh, they do have apparently some autopsy photos and do they have crime scene photos or scene photos? They claim it wasn't a crime, but do they have uh, photos that were taken at the scene? 
Yes, it does state that in the information that I got with the FOIA uh, request that there was uh, photos taken and that I even called just here a couple of months ago trying to get them again, and I asked the girl, I said, can you give me the crime scene photos or any notes? She said, there are no notes. I said, excuse me? I said, he doesn't take notes? She says, well, no, ma'am, he doesn't take notes. And I have a tape conversation of this, and she said that um, – I said, well, how does he know what happened? How does he remember what happened? She said, well, ma'am, he knows. She said, he, but he doesn't have any notes. But in the notes that I did receive from Gary Hargrove, the coroner, I would love to tell you what that said, if you don't mind. Go ahead. Okay. It was on the narrative report that I got back. I had sent in an ask for any and all information, photo pictures, notes, crime scene, anything that he had. I got this back, and now you tell me what you, your honest opinion of this. It's got the narrative summary, and I'm going to get it over here where I can get it under light to read it exactly. It states that um, the deceased caretaker and his daughter both state that he had been depressed. I had never stated to my dad to the corner that my dad was depressed. I'd only spoke to him that one time that morning. She said he's got daughter stated that the deceased had come to her house on April the sixth of two thousand and three and left on April the ninth of two thousand and three. He stated to his daughter that he was making sure that she was happy because he was not coming back to her house again. And I'm like, what the just really, Mr. Denny, I'm thinking, what the hell? You know, how would my daddy, how would he, this corner that is not a bosom buddy of my dad's, not a friend of my dad's, I had never heard his name mentioned ever, how would he know what my dad had stated 14 years ago? Because I just got this for you, this information here on, I think it was like August the 15th of this year. That's the first time I've gotten anything out of this man at all, out of all the requests. But... He doesn't have any notes. He can't tell me anything, but he can specifically and mentally in his mind remember the date that my dad was. My dad didn't come to see me in April. The best of my knowledge, my dad did not come in April. Um, he states that my dad came specifically on April the 3rd, left on April the 9th, and then he was cold-heartedly enough to try to hurt my feelings, even after all he's already done, to make a statement that my dad came to make sure I was happy and then tell me he was never coming back to my house again? Uh, would it be possible that you could just send me the autopsy report? Uh, yes, it sure would be. I'll be glad to. Okay, and... Um... Did you have you consulted with the lawyer to see what would be involved in trying to get a court order, or have you approached the court to see what uh, the requirements are? I have not. I just got this in August, and then I'm working with some people right now that I'm hoping. Um, I do know that Captain Peterson with the Gulfport Police he is taking all information off of my Facebook. Um, They've even gotten into my notes because in some of the stuff he sent me a document that I had only sent to another person. I had never sent it to him. And there's one other thing on there that I got with this FOIA request that I was totally shocked. It's got down a date. It's got three signatures on this form, and it's on about the gun with my dad. It's got down there that I had stated from day one that my dad did not commit suicide, that I knew. Well, 
it's uh, Captain Peterson was gone on his honeymoon here back June, July of this year. While he was gone, I had sent the one FOIA request, and I'm not sure if he's an investigator, detective, how his title is, but his last name was Enos. And he sent some information that Captain Peterson was upset because it was sent. And in that, there was a report that states that it was dated back on April the 22nd of 2003. There were two names there, and then my name was written under it. Well, as I'm looking at this report, I'm saying to myself, I've never seen this form. So I go back through and I dig through everything, and I pride myself in saying I've kept notes, paper, even scratch notes from 50 years back, but could not find it. And I kept looking at that signature. I noticed it's not it's my name, but it's not my signature. They had forged my name to that signature, and on there it states that the on April the 22nd of 2003, a couple of days right after my dad was murdered, that uh, they destroyed the bullets, that they handed me that form showing they destroyed the bullets. No, they recently destroyed or destroyed those bullets whenever I started saying that that was not my dad's gun he was shot with. I did not feel my dad was shot in his driveway. And this paper is forged, and they only gave me that paper in 2017. I had never seen it on April the 22nd of 2003. Now, Phyllis, the, uh, this Captain Peterson of the Gulfport Police Department, uh, your father's uh, house that was in the city limits of Gulfport, that's why the... Uh, the, their police department and not the sheriff's department is handling this? Well, for 36 years, uh, really, I'm going to say for 46, whatever, well, from 1967 until 2017, I called the sheriff's department. I spoke with people at the sheriff's department. Then I was referred to go to, because I had called the Investigative Society of Cold Cases, uh, Kenneth Maines, and he was going to take my case pro bono, but they would not let him accept, they would not accept his help, and he had to be asked in. Well, in 2017, I was referred to a Captain Craig Peterson. Once I called him, he identified as like Gulfport Police. They told me that the Church Department did not handle that case, that it was the city of Gulfport police if they both cases were in that jurisdiction and i said well i've always called and spoke to people at the church department so after 2017 first of the year i was talking with the captain craig peterson and he finally told me that he was handling that case for me to stop calling anyone else anywhere else and only speak to him that he would be the one to handle that case and he has put me off by i'm looking into it miss Phyllis, it's new to me. Uh, Miss Phyllis, I'm trying. He kept telling me that he was waiting on a report from Adam Cooper before he could give me any of the information from the foyer or from his notes. So I sent, one night I was sitting here and I sent Adam Cooper an email and I told him, I said, you know, Adam Cooper, I said, once again, I want to thank you for telling me that you are 99.99% sure that my old brother was murdered by a member of the Dixie Mafia and for, you know, closing a lot of things that I knew were true. I said, I thank you. And I said, but would you please get your notes to Captain Peterson so he can finish the reports and get them to me? 
Captain Peterson intercepted that email. He said he did not, but the conversation that he put back to me were only things that I had discussed with him. I had never discussed this with Adam Cooper. But he sent me the report back, and when he sent Adam Cooper like an attachment, he said, if you'll notice, she's trying to implicate her dad's murder, I mean her dad's death as a murder also. He said, by the way, you know, like she's wrapping your words or warping your words. Well, it was sent to me as an attachment. So when I notified him that I'd got that attachment, he, of course, tries to blame it on Adam Cooper, but I would have to hear Adam Cooper say that, yes, he sent it himself, other than it being coming from uh, Captain Peterson. So I knew then at that point Captain Peterson was not helping me, would never help me, and that he's trying to keep everything covered up as much as possible, even to this day. Now, Phyllis, what officially, as far as the death certificates go, are they still showing suicide on, on your brother and on your father, or have they been changed to homicide? No, I asked Captain Peterson what I could do to get them changed to just unsolved or suspicious. He told me that looking from his information that there is no way that he's going to change the ruling of a suicide, that uh, it's going to stay a suicide. But I must say that whenever he fabricated all the stuff about this um, Jeffrey Bass, they were people, he told me that the Jeffrey Bass that I said murdered my brother was not the Jeffrey Bass that uh, he couldn't find him, that that was not the one. He has some guy come forward that stating that he was Jeffrey Bass and that he was only 15. He wasn't 18. How could a 15-year-old share an apartment with my brother and pay expense? Stated the guy went to carry my brother to get him some shoes, and that is because in my report and all of my information from day one of 67 to now, I stated that my daddy carried my little brother some shoes and some money. You couldn't. He said that this uh, Jeffrey Bass had took my brother that day before he left and was going to buy him some shoes at a Kent dollar store. First of all, I don't know if they had dollar stores back then, but you could not buy my brother's shoes at a dollar store because he wore two different sizes shoe. If you bought a pair of shoes, you had to buy like a seven or eight and a half and then a five or six and a half, and they had to be taken to a brace shop and his brace inserted into the heel of a shoe because he had polio. He couldn't walk without the others. So I knew that that was a lie right there. But, um, yeah, Captain Peterson, he's, he's covered up everything, and I've had witnesses come forward and tell me, yes, this Jeffrey Bass that you put on Facebook, that is Jeffrey Bass. That's the real Jeffrey Bass that we know. That's the Jeffrey Bass that was involved in the mafia back whenever I was involved in it, but I've changed my life around. She's even talked to another person that's a legal person on, that's helping me right now. Um, I know for a fact that that was him, and Captain Peterson is still lying, and they told me that the real Jeffrey Bass had turned state's evidence against some of the mafia members, and that's why they were protecting him. Uh, Phyllis, so you say you've got some some people helping you. Uh, What exactly, if if you can say it, maybe you'd prefer not to, but I'm wondering what you think is going to happen next here. What's the next step? Well, I'm hoping um, Robert Wells with Victims of Families of Missing and Homicide, he has gotten uh, Chris Hansen. I'm working with a Kelly McLear. I hope it's okay to mention all this. I, I usually am not one to hide anything, so 
you know, I, I'm just saying it is the honest way that I know it. Kelly McLear, I sent the information. They're helping me with it. There's a, uh, hopefully it will get on uh, ID Discovery or Crime, Crime Daily, I'm sorry. And then I'm working with a Cheryl McCollum with Crime Research. I am to meet with her and Nancy Grace and all of them in the near future. Hopefully Good. with crime scene experts and stuff to get this. And I'm hoping that someone will come forward and help get this either a change of venue and get it out of Mississippi or get it overruled to where we can reopen the case and prove what has happened. Um, now, we're getting short on time, uh, Phyllis, before we uh, have to sign off. Is there a website or a Facebook page or something where people can go to get more information and kind of keep uh, – keep up with what's happening with your investigation? Sure. I have Murdered in Mississippi on Facebook. It is open to the public. I also have Seeking Justice for Ronnie and Daddy. They are open to the public. But also the main issues and the main information on this is if you Google Dixie Mafia 1987, it tells all about Judge Sherry, the, all the blogs there. You can Google Ronnie Anderson and the Dixie Mafia, or either Dan Anderson and the Dixie Mafia, and it pulls up the web page, the YouTubes, and the articles on them that you can read and get all of the information also. Well, well so I, I just I have gotta... one question before before we run totally out of time. Um, right. After all of these years, you know, 50-some years since your brother what is their point of keeping this covered up? I mean, I, I'm I'm assuming most of the players are either dead or in jail or or whatever. But what is what is the point of law enforcement of keeping all of this covered up and making this so difficult for you? It's like the good old boy system there in Mississippi. Just like you're, you, when you take an oath as a police officer, a dentist, a pharmacy, or whatever, you protect your fellow man. And a lot of them that are in there, their families were members of it back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. The sheriff's department was involved in it. Uh, they're protecting their officers and stuff. And they're still protecting the gambling in the casino and the corruption that is going on. But for 50 years for me, you know, that was, I did not get into their world. Now, Jeffrey Bass, the one that murdered my dad, my brother, he is still alive. Uh, Kursky Nix, the head of the Dixie Mafia that also knows what's going on, he's in Terre Haute, Indiana prison. I have letters back from him where he and I have corresponded back and forth. Uh, Pete Hallett, the one that had my dad keep this information private about the murders of Judge Sherry, he's still alive. So those are the ones that I really would love to question and to talk to, you know, but I did not get into their world. They stepped into my world when they murdered my brother and my daddy, and I would not be much of a person to just walk away and say, well, out of fear, I can't do this, or, you know, I'm tired of working with this. This is something that I would die trying to seek justice. Well, do you feel like do you feel like the hand of the Dixon Mafia is as strong now as it was back then, or it's just morphed into something no, different? no. Yeah, it's, now they are different groups and, I guess, new organizations. The city, the Simon City Royals have taken over what was the old Dixie Mafia, per se, 
in Gulfport. But as far as the name of the Dixie Mafia and still corruption going on, yes, it's in Georgia and it's in different places, but those people were not involved in anything to do with my brother. This era of time, Dixie Mafia and group had nothing to do with the ones that were involved back in the time of my brother and daddy. But the ones that were is Kersky Nix, Pete Hallett, and Jeffrey Bass, who are still alive in Gulfport, if the police would get off of their buff and do their job. Had they convicted Jeffrey Bass and brought him in for the murder of my brother, which they knew he did, my dad may still have been alive or my dad may have just died a normal death of, you know, old age or a heart attack or, you know, whatever. I would not be living the, the pain and the horror of knowing that they blowed both my daddy and my little brother's brains out and that the police knew about it and still to this day would do nothing but lie and cover it up. But I do, rep, you know, commend uh, Captain Peterson on one thing. Even though he did his fabricated FOIA request and he sent all the lies and the fabricated information, he admitted Jeffrey Bass is real. He admitted Jeffrey Bass was with my brother. He admitted that, yes, this Kathy was a real person. Now, she has passed away, but I know her husband and family members to confirm. You know, so I know now that, yes, Kathy did call and tell me that my brother was murdered or, he, you know, that God killed him. Yes, I know that Jeffrey Bass was the only one there. And, yes, by the lies that were told, I know I'm correct on everything that I have told. So I feel like uh, Captain in his own warped mind gave me the murder confession that I needed. Uh Phyllis, it's, uh, I want to commend you on on your efforts and not giving up because a lot of people certainly would have. And we're completely out of time. In fact, we're over time. So Good. I want to thank you very much for joining us again and bringing us up to date on what's going on with the, with the investigation. And I hope you'll keep us informed. Uh, well, you know, love Delilah. You're yep, you, and, you and Delilah are perfect, and I will keep you abreast of everything. Thank you, fellas. Thank you so much for being with us. And to our uh, listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in. And in the meantime, until the next show, stay safe. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.